0: my name is laura dawn and you're listening to episode number 47 of the psychedelic leadership podcast featuring this real talk conversation with author educator and somatic psychotherapist laura may Northrop. northrup
1: if we, if we're gonna get real about what's going on in the world We have so much trauma. I mean, even people who have lived lives that are very, very privileged, where they don't feel like they have that much trauma. If you are existing in this world, you have probably been shamed for your sexuality. You probably have a lot of shadow stuff around how you feel about your sexuality, even if you know know, know sort of, quote, trauma. And, you know, we're just, we're living at a time where we have inherited generations and generations of abuse, genocide, colonialism, like so much violence, capitalism. So I think one thing I'll say is just, none of us have actually been spared of harm. We can't really think about sexual trauma and supporting survivors only from this tiny lens of like, okay, harm happened and now, you know, how how do you heal? Like when we're really invested in healing around sexual trauma, we have to be invested in the larger community. People who are survivors of sexual trauma are more likely to be sexually abused by the practitioners they go to for healing. Depending on the kind of work you're doing, the power dynamic could be, you know, different in different contexts because obviously there's a lot of ways to be a practitioner in a psychedelic space. Oftentimes when you're a practitioner, you know a lot more about your client than they know about you. You know a lot about their psychology. You know a lot about their wounding. They do not know as much about you. People just need to learn how to not cause sexual harm that's what people need to learn definitely psychotherapists or people who are practicing in a therapeutic context like coaches and whatnot that do ongoing work that's one-on-one um where there's psychedelic work happening should not have sex with their clients and you know it's interesting because there's all this conversation at the moment and for the past probably at least a year where people are really sort of publicly obsessed with the idea of the narcissist you know, there's like this, am I a narcissist? What's a narcissist? How do you like identify a narcissist? And like, one of the things I think is sort of ironic about this is we live in an extremely narcissistic culture. And one of the hallmarks of narcissism is an inability to process shame, which then the person who is having the narcissistic defense is projecting the shame out onto other people. And if you are a clinician, you have to try your hardest not to harm anyone and do the personal work not to but also when we do do harm or or when we are just like not our best to be able to tolerate the shame enough to actually really confront that
0: if you've been tuning into and following some of the current conversations that have been unfolding in the psychedelic space you might be hearing this phrase the shadow side of psychedelics a lot more recently I've been at South by Southwest all week here in Austin, attending a ton of panels and conversations around psychedelics, and it's definitely up right now. I think we're officially over the hump of the over glorification phase of psychedelics, which really did hit a peak moment, I would say, in the past two years. I think the movement has been going through a developmental phase because many people who are in the space right now, I have these conversations all the time. People who are spearheading large initiatives in the psychedelic space had their first journeys within the last couple of years. It's not uncommon. And I think it's pretty natural that when you first work with psychedelics and witness just how transformational these powerful tools are, it's pretty easy to want to shout it from the rooftops. And with all the positive media attention due to Michael Pollan's book and so many promising research results coming out, we really hit this overzealous moment in the space – which I've been recently speaking to, especially in the trailer for season two and in the introduction to Jamie Wheel's episode. And I think it's really good that we come back to equilibrium here. We are all full-spectrum human beings. These are incredibly versatile, full-spectrum, multifaceted medicines. And I think portraying anything as quote-unquote all good is problematic You know, when we start imbuing these medicines as cure-all solutions, I think that that's where we run into trouble. And now some of the shadow aspects of these medicines are starting to become more illuminated. Now, that being said, recently a certain news outlet, and I won't name names here, they've been really digging into and trying to amplify all the problems in the space. MAPS has been coming under quite a lot of scrutiny in the past couple of weeks, And I think it's important how we hold space for the difficult conversations that are emerging in the psychedelic movement right now. I think we also need to not just swing in the other direction and just focus on all the problems, but maintain a sense of inner equilibrium and equanimity when having these challenging conversations. Let's be kind to each other in this space. And I've said this before, we're not going to grow through shaming each other. And my personal perspective is that call-out culture is toxic, and I think we can reframe the narrative to call people in, to invite people into these conversations, setting an appropriate container that allows dialogue to happen, and we can learn to engage in these challenging, nuanced, tricky conversations with an open attitude of curiosity and non-reactivity. So this conversation with somatic psychotherapist Laura May Northrup is one of those conversations that could definitely fall into the category of the dark side of psychedelics. We're going to dive into some real talk here, talking about trauma, sexual harm, and sexual abuse in patient-clinician relationships, how healing practitioners can cross lines, and how to hold space for these conversations and quote-unquote calling out abuse in the community, in the space, and how do we hold people accountable and responsible, which again, these are very tricky topics to address. And we talk about shame and guilt and narcissism and why we all need to understand the power dynamic, which is incredibly important. So this conversation and these topics are absolutely crucial to understand whether you are listening to this episode from the perspective as a journeyer, someone new to psychedelics, or whether you're cultivating yourself as a guide or facilitator, which again takes a lot of different forms. There's a very wide spectrum for what that looks like these days. Everyone in the psychedelic community needs to become more informed about trauma, about sexual abuse, and the signs to pay attention to, and how not to cause harm while in the psychedelic experience. I also have a free guide called 45 Questions to Vet Your Shaman or Psychedelic Facilitator, which is also a worthwhile resource to check out for anyone in the space, whether you're looking for a practitioner or you are a practitioner holding space. This is a really helpful resource for everyone in the space, and I really encourage you to share it with other people that you know, especially people who are new to psychedelics. And you can access that at lauradon.co forward slash downloads. And so, yes, we dive into some heavy topics here today, but we don't have to label it as quote unquote bad per se. We just need to become better informed and support each other in doing better. Now, I first saw Laura Mae Northrup speak at Horizons conference back in December, and it was such a powerful speech. She received a standing ovation from the audience And I really love and appreciate the way that Laura communicates. She's straight up, she's not afraid to say what she thinks. She communicates clearly and with kindness, and she holds a balanced perspective. And I've really enjoyed getting to know her more. She's also the author of Radical Healership, a book that I just finished. Highly recommend it for people stepping out. With offerings in the psychedelic space or in the healing space. And I recorded another full episode with Laura May just about this book and everything she covers in this book. And I'll be releasing that episode within the next two months. I was gonna do it back to back, but I decided to space it out a little bit. And so Laura's also the host and creator of the podcast Inside Eyes, an audio series about people using entheogens and psychedelics to heal from sexual trauma. Her work focuses on defining sexual violence through a spiritual and politicized lens, mentoring healing practitioners in creating a meaningful path and supporting the spiritual integrity of our collective humanity. She is a champion of living more fully engaged and responsible lives through the healing of entheogens, psychedelics, play, and psychotherapy. Now, there were a lot of resources mentioned in this episode, and you can access all of those resources and their links by going to lauradawn.co forward slash 47. I'll be leaving this episode off with a beautiful song called Water by the Emmett Sisters. That's E-double-M-I-double-T, sisters. I just discovered them and I really love their music. And the link to their Spotify profile is in the show notes as well if you want to listen to other songs on the album as well. (laughs) It was so funny. I was at Willie Nelson's Luck Ranch last night and it was so beautiful to watch Willie live playing with his two sons. And a friend of mine was there with me and he asked me if I was familiar with the five love language, which of course I am, and asked me which one my love language was. And I said they have to rewrite the book because my love language, the sixth one, is Spotify songs. (laughs) People who know and love me know how much I love to communicate through music. So feel free to send me your favorite songs. You can send them to me through Instagram, through a DM at livefreelaurad, or feel free to reach out through my website, lauradon.co, and maybe I'll feature one of those songs on this show, although I do have to get permission from every artist before I feature them. (sighs) Okay. So this past week at South by Southwest has been incredible and I've just had the honor and privilege of meeting more and more people who tune in and listen to this show. And it's always a joy to meet people in person who have been repeatedly tuning in and really enjoying this podcast. And the show is doing incredibly well. And I just want to say thank you so much for supporting me through the process right from the beginning. It's been such a huge learning curve and I've felt so supported by so many people. So thank you for continuing to listen. It really means the world to me. All right, friends, while you're listening to this episode, don't forget to breathe y'all. We are learning and growing here together and we can also learn to support each other in doing better and becoming more informed and more aware about these topics and about how to navigate through these very challenging, tricky situations and these tricky conversations with a little bit more grace and a little bit more kindness. All right, without any further ado, here's my Real Talk conversation with somatic psychotherapist Laura May Northrup. Your keynote at Horizons was a highlight for me. It was like you literally could hear a pin drop. You received a standing ovation. I was super moved by everything that you shared. And right now with the psychedelic movement, there's a lot of hype and we feel this sort of frenzy of so many people coming into the psychedelic space and people are pretty much claiming that psychedelics can cure anything under the sun these days. So it's like very amazing to see the way that it's in such a positive light. And there are shadow aspects to this. And you spoke about harm and hype and bias and failure in psychedelic therapy at Horizons. So I just wanted to give you the opportunity to share a little background of a little about yourself and how you came to offer such a riveting speech at Horizons.
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, so uh, thank you for your kind words. So a little bit of background. I'm a psychotherapist and I specialize in working with sexual trauma. I have a, a very special interest in the healing of sexual trauma. And I think as a politicized person, you know, it's we can't really think about sexual trauma and supporting survivors only from this tiny lens of like, okay, harm happened. And now, you know, how do you how do you heal? Like when we're really invested in healing around sexual trauma, we have to be invested in the larger community And so I've done a lot of political work around this. Um, I was involved in a collective called the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective for a while that is trying to build community-based responses to sexual violence. And then also I have my podcast Inside Eyes, which is all about people who are using psychedelics and entheogens to heal sexual trauma. So, So I'm very invested in healing sexual trauma, but while I was making my podcast you know, I, I was also one of those people who was like, hey, guess what, everybody, you can do all this incredible healing work with psychedelics. They're amazing. But I was kind of like, I can't really like wholeheartedly put this series out there without acknowledging that, and this is very specific, that people who are survivors of sexual trauma are more likely to be sexually abused by the practitioners they go to for healing. And so this kind of all started with me making an episode about that and just really getting into explaining the psychology of it and there's a there's a lot that i have to say about it from the clinician perspective of why that happens and some of the kind of i want to say like things that happen in therapy that can be really confusing for clinicians that then make an opening for some kind of abuse to happen and of course clinicians you know choose to cause abuse it's not that they sort of are just invited to do it and then sort of happen to do it um but so so I made this whole episode about that. um, And I actually spoke at Horizons, I want to say it was before the pandemic, maybe 2019. Um, And but I spoke not on the main stage and in a smaller um, setting that was more of like a um, it was like a one day on dealing with um, sexual violence in the community. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, there's been so many big, big high profile cases that have come out in the last few months around sexual violence from practitioners toward the people who they're working with in psychedelic spaces uh, that you know, I think Horizons, the people who um, run Horizons just felt like it was really time to, to have it on the main stage. And of course, Horizons has their own history with um, sexual abuse, not uh, necessarily uh, practitioners abusing um, clients, but the previous MC for years was called out for being sexually predatory with a lot of young women who would go to the conference and and just in general in the community. So that's kind of how I ended up there. And the only other thing I'll say about it is, you know, I think that the feeling that people had when they were listening to me give my talk, part of what was in that was also a lot of uh, rawness of like, you know, I am a survivor. And I said that in my, in my talk and it's a lot to go and and speak that publicly and really be calling out slash calling in your colleagues and yourself. I mean, anybody can cause harm in a therapeutic context. So it was a very powerful thing for me to give. And then I think it was also really powerful for other people to hear.
0: Mm. And it's so interesting. And again, there, it's such a nuanced topic here because we're talking about people coming to the medicine to heal from trauma. And yet they're also like, why is that that there are then more vulnerable people who have been sexually abused? Why is the, why is there more likelihood of that happening again in that container?
1: Well, one thing I'll say is just, I mean, if, if, we, if we're going to get real about <laughs> what's going on in the world, We have so much trauma. I mean, even people who have lived lives that are very, very privileged, where they don't feel like they have that much trauma. If you are existing in this world, you have probably been shamed for your sexuality. You probably have a lot of shadow stuff around how you feel about your sexuality, even if you know, no, no sort of quote trauma. And, you know, we're just, we're living at a time where we have inherited generations and generations of abuse, genocide, Colonialism, like so much violence, capitalism. So I think one thing I'll say is just none of us have actually been spared of harm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And and we live in a world that really normalizes harmful behavior. So that's like a baseline, just like this idea. I think there can be an idea that like a therapist or a healing practitioner of any kind doesn't cause harm. That is not true. We are normal-ass people. We do all kinds of things that are not necessarily uh, like, you know, acting in the highest integrity. So I'll say, I think that's one of the first sort of like demystifying things about why harm happens and in, in healing spaces. And then the piece about it's very specifically happening to survivors of sexual trauma. There are many, well, one thing is I think people who are, who have a predatory part of them that, that is looking for someone to abuse I think that people who have that kind of streak in them can really see a lot of vulnerability and a lot of potential to harm someone who's already really traumatized. Mm-hmm. So somebody who has less trauma oftentimes is going to have a little bit more of a an intact sense of boundaries and an intact sense of like how they deserve to be treated. Somebody who is really traumatized and really vulnerable and seeking healing may be more likely to be in a place where they're so in need of healing that they're willing to do whatever the healing practitioner says is okay. But also people with sexual trauma oftentimes communicate in a very unconscious way about their trauma. And they do that because they don't necessarily have the words yet. Like part of what happens in trauma is that a lot of things become very unconscious. And so when you're in a healing space with someone who has a lot of unconscious material, That is really evocative, and they're bringing it in in a very unconscious way. And when I say that, what I mean is, like, for example, you know, in the field, uh, if somebody misses a session and doesn't tell you that they're not coming, somebody who's not a, a clinician might be like, "Oh, they just forgot the session." As a clinician, you're thinking, "I wonder what was going on unconsciously that they forgot the session. What are they communicating?" And they might be communicating something as simple as, "I am afraid to go to therapy," or. I didn't like something you said in the last session or whatever. So basically when there's a lot of unconscious communication, some of that unconscious communication can look like invitations for any kind of like boundary crossing. And and so like, for example, you know, in some of these cases, people who are the practitioners will say, well, the client invited me into a sexual relationship. But when a client does something like that, As the clinician, we say no to that. So that's communicating something. It's communicating, are you safe? Will you cross my boundaries? Is my sexual trauma something that can destroy your boundaries? I mean, there's a lot of really complex communication in that that gets missed when somebody is like, well, I'm not really going to be in my clinician role anymore and I'm just going to go for this. And of course, there's something very unconscious happening in the clinician as well if they're sort of seeing that as an actual opportunity for sexual contact, as opposed to very much a clinical issue. I hope that all makes sense. I know it's kind of complicated.
0: Mm, I mean, it is super complex. So I'm curious, do you have a sort of standard definition of trauma? Because like, I feel like it's amazing that trauma is like really boiling to the surface in our culture right now. But then people are like, I crossed the road and something happens. It was very traumatic versus (laughs) uh, like actual real trauma. So is there a distinguishing factor in what actually makes something a trauma?
1: Yeah. Well, and I hear what you're saying. Sometimes people use the term trauma just to mean that they're upset, which is, you know, being upset is a, a totally valid experience. You know, I think that there's so many ways people define this, but I think probably how I would define it is that your body, your organism, your nervous system experiences something that feels, I want to say that feels potentially Mm -hmm. life-threatening or like, I want to say like, maybe isn't quite to the point of, of like, I could die, but I'm, I'm suddenly like... confronted with extreme vulnerability, which I think in the end is related to death anxiety. Um, So, so yeah, like extreme vulnerability. And then for some people, you know, people can experience trauma just by witnessing um, someone else be traumatized. I think a lot of it has to do too with just what ends up um, like what your symptoms are. So sometimes people experience something, for example, um, emotional abuse. You know, you might not be feeling with emotional abuse, like I am at risk of death, but you may be being made to feel powerless and being made to feel an extreme level of vulnerability. And I think what determines whether that's traumatic or not is what that person's like lasting symptoms are. Mm -hmm. So sometimes we experience abuse and we don't end up with trauma. And other times we experience something that might feel more mild than what we would call abuse. And we have trauma and that has a lot to do with I, mean, I could go on and on about all the different aspects of why something ends up being traumatic, but I'll leave it there.
0: What do you think we need to understand as a community and especially people who are stepping in to hold space with psychedelic medicines about holding the power dynamic and understanding that?
1: I mean, I would say one one really big piece of that is that people just really underestimate the power dynamic.
0: Maybe you could explain what the power dynamic is for some people yeah. listening. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Well, you know, depending on the kind of work you're doing, the power dynamic could be, you know, d- different in different contexts, because obviously there's a lot of ways to be a practitioner in a psychedelic space. But um, oftentimes, when you're a practitioner, you know a lot more about your client than they know about you. You know a lot about their psychology. You know a lot about their wounding. They do not know as much about you. You are inviting them into one of the possibly most profound experiences they're going to have in their life. And your in some way associated with that being possible. And I say it like that because I do not think that, you know, I think the medicine is really mm-hmm. kind of the the collaborator in that space that is more sort of like I don't want to make practitioners sound godlike, but but practitioners are doing incredible work. It's it's very powerful to be holding space for somebody who's dropping into that. And when practitioners underestimate the power dynamic, what they're not seeing is that there could be so many ways that the client or the journeyer or the seeker is experiencing the practitioner that they might not even be aware of, or they might not give voice to. So for example, they might not really actually feel very safe Mm -hmm. saying no. They might be very trusting in a circumstance where, you know, maybe that that practitioner doesn't actually deserve that trust, but they can be very trusting. And they also can sometimes feel things like, oh, if I had a sexual relationship with this person, that would maybe heal me. Like maybe if I was partnered with somebody who was a therapist or partnered with somebody who was a medicine guide, that would be a really healthy relationship. So there can be just a lot of idealizing mm-hmm. and you know, oftentimes when these circumstances happen where for example, somebody um uh, it seems, and I talked about this at Horizons. It seems like a consensual relationship between a practitioner and their client. In retrospect, the clients often feel like it was traumatic, and sometimes they even exhibit symptoms of incest survivors. And if you think about it, it's like there's this person who has a lot of power over you. This person knows a lot more about you than you know about them, and you've entered into some kind of sexual relationship with a huge power dynamic. And and then when that you know, ends. If you look at that, in some ways, it does mirror some of what happens with incest survivors. You know, oftentimes with incest, the person who is the abuser has a lot more power over the person who is being abused. Um, and so, I, I think, I think even if a clinician doesn't fully understand the power dynamic, which you should question your ability to practice if you can't ever. If you, I mean, I, I think people really need to get to that point. But I think, you know, in the process of getting to that point, it's just important to understand there is a huge power dynamic and it is never okay to have sex with your clients.
0: And okay, this is such a huge conversation right now because like I actually know a lot of people who hold space, they'll hold ceremonies and then they're also single and they're like, okay, well, is it okay if like six months after the ceremony that I hold that like, you know, I'm in communication with that person and what if something develops? So it's like, it's such a gray area to know around what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. And I actually remember that moment that you said that at Horizons and it was like, bingo, even if it's consensual, there's a power dynamic at play. And as a person in the, that power position, it's actually not okay. Even if that person is consenting, but like at what point, you know, because we're all humans, some people are like, Oh, I might meet my life partner doing this work. So like, where do you draw the line?
1: Yeah. So I think this is really complicated because and and I when I when I spoke at Horizons, I was really specific to talk about psychedelic therapy
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, because I do feel comfortable saying it is never okay to have sex with your client in a therapeutic context. Mm -hmm. You know, there's also a lot of really complex ways that people access medicine work. I'm not going to say that one way, you know, like I understand it's like maybe you meet somebody and 2 years later you meet them again and you did one journey with them once in a huge group setting or maybe they mm-hmm. assisted at a ceremony or something and and I understand that it's 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 very different than having an ongoing therapeutic relationship. And you know, I I was talking to my friend Leah Friedwoman about this before I gave my talk and I was like, I don't know, you know, what should I say on this because, you know, people always ask me this question. And she was like, Laura, Laura. People just need to learn how to not cause sexual harm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what people need to learn, and it it really just kind of cut through it all. So what I would say is definitely psychotherapists or people who are practicing in a therapeutic context, like coaches and whatnot, that do ongoing work—it's one-on-one um, where there's psychedelic work happening—should not have sex with their clients. You know, beyond that, what I will say in terms of things that look a lot more like a community is that. We really, if you are a clinician, you really need to educate yourself on what sexual harm is and how to not cause it. Mm-hmm. And that will mean that there are many people that you will meet in your community, maybe even people that you never worked with, that you should not be having a sexual relationship with because of the power dynamic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'll, I'll leave it there. But yeah, people need to educate themselves.
0: Okay. Can Can we talk about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. So what yeah, sure. defining sexual harm and how we educate ourselves on not causing it.
1: Sexual harm, I think, is anything where the power dynamic makes in- consent impossible, mm-hmm. and it's anything where consent is was not received. So, for example, we've got abuse that's just like no consent was asked for or consent was asked for and the person said no and the, and the sexual contact happened anyways or sexual, you know, it doesn't have to be physical contact. It could also be like sexual harassment mm-hmm. or something that's less physical. Obviously, all those are, you know, I think that's what we normally think of as like, okay, somebody said no or they didn't consent and the person moved forward with it anyway. That's non consensual. That is a form of sexual violence. I think the part that we're sort of talking about that's more confusing is when people are in a position that they don't actually feel very aware of the fact that they don't feel a total right to consent. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is so complicated. I think like if you're a clinician and you are, thinking about having a sexual relationship with someone, you should definitely talk to your colleagues. I think anytime that you want to make something secretive, that's a sign mm-hmm. that like and especially again, like a lot of people who are um being abused by practitioners are people who already have pre-existing histories of sexual violence. And for mm-hmm. a lot of people that can be um childhood sexual abuse that oftentimes includes a lot of secrecy. So Anything that looks like secrecy, you don't want to tell people, you feel like other people wouldn't understand what you're choosing to do. That is a sign that there's something wrong. Um, And I think it's really important if you are considering any sort of any type of relationship where you have any question that you don't just go act on the relationship and that you also don't just go to your peers and colleagues that are the people who are kind of just going to be like, yeah, totally. You're, you know, go. Go seek out somebody who can actually give you an honest opinion about that. I mean, I think even paying to consult with a clinician that is more experienced than you or um, has a pretty strong like trauma lens would be a great idea. Yeah. And then from there, I think also as clinicians, you know, we really need to work on understanding our role in the world and how people actually view us. Mm -hmm. So When you're a clinician and you're around people who know that, and they're not, and even if they're not your clients, that they are possibly imbuing you with and, you know, idealizing you in a way that makes you seem like you don't have faults. I think that's really common with clinicians and and practitioners. Um, They may be viewing you as someone who, like I said, like a relationship with you would be somehow beneficial to them because you are a quote, a healer. Mm -hmm. Um, And when we get a lot more in contact with how people actually feel towards us, I think that allows us to see more of like oh idealization that's not a sign of a of a healthy dynamic or to create a relationship out of that's a sign that there's something happening there's wounding that's um, emerging here between us it probably feels good in that moment it can feel really good to be idealized but you know the flip side of idealization is devaluation and it's not going to feel good when that starts to <laughs> when that right. the, when the coin flips um and it also idealization produces a lot of potential for abuse. I think trying to date people who are peer to you is a big one. Like, you know, if somebody is 22 years old and is not a clinician of any kind and you meet them, I mean, I think this is some of the stuff that was happening with Neil Goldsmith at Horizons, you know, and you're like the MC at an event or you're a revered clinician. There is a power dynamic and and you you can't ignore that even if you don't want it to be the case. Mm-hmm. And the final thing I'll say on this about just like, you know, how people can cannot cause sexual harm and can really be navigating this is you need to be doing your own personal work. And if you're a clinician that has, I mean, we all need to be doing our personal work, but if you have your own trauma, you need to be working that. And it's not like I work that and now I'm over it. When you're a clinician, because you're interacting with other people's psychic material and spiritual material for your entire career, you need to be doing healing work your entire career. Like we just do healing work that is way beyond what the average person would ever want to do. And, and that's part of our job.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hear you saying the word clinician a lot. And I would say probably like actual clinicians listening to this podcast are. I, I, it would be interesting, actually. It'd be I'd be curious to know like how many people are in like the actual therapy camp, because there's a lot of people going for it right now, just like stepping into guide practitioner facilitator roles. So maybe from that angle, especially because that's. I mean, there are people stepping into this space in in by the droves at this point what would you say is like some of the most necessary training to become trauma informed like as a baseline
1: yeah and I would okay yeah and and two people who are doing that you know I mean if I had a dollar for every person who took mushrooms and then was like Laura I had a calling I'm gonna start guiding Mm -hmm. like next week I'm like you know like with love I just say please don't do that please don't you know, if you want to sit for a friend and and you're not commenting at all on their journey and all you're doing is kind of getting them water and blankets, like fine. But when you get into the part where you are holding space for people to do trauma work, you are engaging with them in their journey or engaging with them around their journey and doing integration work. This is not work to be done without training. Mm-hmm. And I cannot underscore that enough. And there are many people who think that that's not the case, who think, oh, you know, like I can just intuit, no, like just, no, no, no. You really, really need training. And what I've said to people when they're like, what should, you know, what training should I take? I'm like, I don't even care if it's a psychedelic training, go get a trauma training. And, um, you know, I'm trained in sensory motor psychotherapy. I think for people who are really interested in doing psychedelic work, getting a somatic training is actually incredibly helpful because a huge part of what's happening in psychedelic work is somatic work. So, getting trained in something like somatic experiencing, sensory motor—I um, know Hakomi has kind of a <laughs> there's there's some critique going on. There's it, a but, lot you know,
0: going on around Hakomi, unfortunately, right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. But Hakomi
1: is—you know—the basic underst- understanding is very similar to sensory motor and and um and somatic experiencing. Uh, getting an IFS training mm-hmm. is a, another big training that people um, I know in the MDMA world love, and a lot of people counter that with like, well. It's really expensive, and it takes a long time,
0: right. And the other thing, actually, I don't know if you know this, but like both ifS and somatic experiencing have, like really long wait lists. Like it's like years out to be able to actually get on the freaking list, which they is do like they're very
1: popular right now. Well, another thing I'll say, just like a giant shout out to Janina Fisher, who I was trained by. She trained me in sensory motor, but she does her own trainings that are separate from sensory motor as well. And for anyone listening, read her books take a training with her. She's so intelligent. She is not going to be talking to you about psychedelics. Like that's, <laughs> that's not what she's going to be doing, but she will help you understand trauma.
0: Mm-hmm. What's her name? Repeat her name.
1: Janina Fisher. She's okay. amazing. Truly. She's, she's really, really intelligent and very, very bright and has like a massive history. I mean, she's mm-hmm. a very senior clinician and she's trained in IFS and sensory motor and psychodynamic thinking. And so I would say definitely take a, a trauma training and I would take a trauma training, even if you are not planning on working psychologically with people. And part of why I say that is because you need to know enough about trauma to know what not to do. So even if you're never going to work psychologically with someone, you need to understand what psychological work is so that you don't get into it. And I say that like, you know, it's easy for us to kind of do like sort of amateur, therapy by all the things that we've heard or read in pop psychology outlets. And it's really important to know when to not say something. If you don't, if you don't have it, the sort of skills to back up a conversation, I would not even start the conversation. Um, and instead just, you know, hold back and say, look, I think you should really see a therapist. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, if, if you were in the role where you're just sort of doing the guide work, um, Yeah. So, and then the other really big thing I would say, and again, people are like, I don't know, it's really expensive. I don't want to do it. And I'm like, go to your own therapy, truly. And I see this also, you know, there's so many people who go to medicine work and do incredible healing. And then there's a lot of people who go to medicine work and they do healing, but it kind of doesn't stick. And one of the biggest things I notice is the people where they're doing the healing work and it's really sticking and a lot of transformations happening are often doing some kind of therapy or coaching that Mm -hmm. is, you know, weekly ongoing, that's really supporting them to to actually grow and take that medicine work into the next level in their life. And so that's the other thing I would say. And I know people are like, it takes too long, it's too expensive. You know, this is a part of the job. Like we don't do this work. If you aren't willing to sort of take your being and your instrument truly in this work and hone it and craft it and and it takes years and years to be skilled then you probably shouldn't be stepping into this career
0: right I totally agree. Yeah. I was going to say, especially with somatic experiencing, like I've done some really amazing courses of Peter Levine's through, for example, Sounds True. And so you're not necessarily going like certification route because those are really, really long wait lists. And some of those programs are really long, but you can even do like a 12 week program where it's like an evergreen course and read Peter Levine's work and be able to dive in and get the tools so i think that that's even just like baseline and so what are some of the signs that we can highlight here and illuminate for people to pay attention to to say oh that's a a red flag that i might need to actually refer this person to someone else because sometimes people come they'll do even medical intakes and in the medical intake or in the you know client intake Sometimes people have zero awareness of what trauma they're actually dealing with. So you can't even like flag for that. But you said like actually a lot of trauma is related to somatic experiencing and so somatic awareness. Um, so what are some of the things that we could pay attention to? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. You know, and, and I'll just also one more thing I want to say about this that actually kind of relates to, the, to this piece as well. You know, therapists have a tradition where, when we don't know what's going on in a case, or we aren't skilled enough to work with a case, that we actually go get consultation. Mm -hmm. And I think because a lot of this work is illegal, and also that doesn't necessarily have a full tradition of it, um, there can be a way that people are kind of out there on their own, like they're just sort of doing their mushroom journeys or their their guided journeys, and they're not necessarily making weekly time to go talk to other clinicians and talk about what happened in a way where they're examining, here's where I feel like I went wrong, or here's, what, here's where I need some guidance or some eyes on my work. And so I'll also say that if you're at all worried that you're going to be causing any kind of harm or you're um, newly practicing, starting a group with other clinicians who do similar work and talking it over weekly is a great way for you to learn and also to make sure that someone else has eyes on what you're doing.
0: That's actually really lacking. So like there's peer-to-peer support and some of my closest friends who do guide work, I mean, they've been doing it for years and they still go to weekly therapy sessions. You know, they're still doing that. They're really dedicated to their own work, which I really, really appreciate. And then there's like really, I mean, it's unfortunate because I feel like the apprenticeship model and the mentorship model, there's like peer-to-peer support, but then also, you know, these other apprenticeship models that are more sort of prevalent in shamanic cultures, but not so prevalent here for a variety of reasons.
1: Yeah. And, oh gosh, I love that you mentioned that too, because, you know, I'm obviously coming from a very Western context when I'm like, go get consultation or, you know, do this X, Y, and Z. And there can be this way that people are (laughs) sort of like, trying to um, practice in a way that feels like it's a more traditional way of practicing. And so they're rejecting things like consultation or rejecting therapy. But the fact is that we are living, if you're living in the U.S., you're probably living in some level of culture that's really fragmented. And so it's not the case that you're living in a small, like, 300-person community where um you're in you know regular com- conversation mm-hmm. with all the people and if somebody causes harm, it's on the whole community to engage in it. We live in a really fragmented isolated society where uh, we actually we can't just sort of like live out this idealized version of what like a tribe or a you know, kind of all these ways people talk about like their community might be if we weren't suffering from the deep isolation that's um, inherent in capitalism and colonialism. So yes, yes to everything you just said. And this piece, okay, so back to this piece you asked me about kind of like the signs that somebody is um, experiencing a level of trauma where you probably shouldn't work with them. I would say this is something where it's very, very personal to the clinician. Each of us, or the practitioner, each of us have, limits of what we can work with. Mm -hmm. A lot of times those limits have to do with our own personal wounding. You know, I don't think it's the case that some people are too traumatized to do psychedelic work. I think it's the case that some clinicians aren't necessarily ready to hold space for somebody with severe trauma. Um, and it's true. Many people come into healing work and they are either really dissociated or they're really private or they're really ashamed and they don't necessarily state what their trauma is. So it's this isn't something you're going to kind of find on an intake form. What I will say is if you, uh, you know, I, I know people do this all very differently and some people just show up and they do the work with someone and they haven't actually had a conversation with that person or that person can just sign up to come to their ceremony and that's just all chill I think if you're working with people and you want to really do right by them and be trauma-informed, you should be having a conversation with everybody who's entering your community or entering your ceremony space or anybody who you're going to be doing um, this work with. And I know this probably isn't a really satisfying answer, but I actually think it's a really good idea to get some sessions in with someone who's more experienced and also possibly somebody who understands a lot of your psychology as Mm -hmm. the clinician who can help you start to sort out who are the people that you end up becoming not your best self with? Like who are the people where your own trauma starts to get ignited and you maybe step into a place where you want to help them more than you should be. You step into a place where you don't want to help them. You step into a place where you don't want to hold what's coming up for them. You know, and I can say as a clinician, like that has been a very, very painful, long process for me to kind of discern like, oh, here are the nuances of what I have to look for in another person when they come to me, and not because they don't deserve healing, but because I am not going to be a good therapist to them. That stuff is like it's where I get like I get fragmented and funky, and I don't do my best work. So wow, I think for and each that of us,
0: requires like an enormous amount of self awareness. Like yeah. like wow, this is this client who's paying me right now is triggering me,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, that's I mean, we got to get to the point where where we know that stuff about ourselves, you know, and if you're really early on and you're confused, like another thing is you don't have to do this work all by yourself. You could also be like, I'm going to run retreats with a second person, Mm -hmm. somebody else who, you know, I can like be talking through all of this with. Um, So I think there's a lot of ways to safeguard against it. And I mean, we do. We just do end up causing harm. There's also a piece to this that's like having compassion for yourself. I think the most important thing is that we're really, really actively trying not to cause harm. And then of course, if we do cause some harm, taking it very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. You know, even if that harm is just something like someone came to one of your ceremonies and you were so triggered by them that you ignored them and they were left alone and they needed your support. I think there is a again, a, a good consultation on this, but I think there's a way to take accountability for that um, and to do some really strong work around getting that person to, to, to helping them find find a healing practitioner who can actually hold what's going on for them. And then for ourselves, whenever something like that comes up, you know for us, like going into our own our own personal work and just what came up for me, that I ignored that person, what came up for me that I just like couldn't face what was happening for them, or I couldn't have clear boundaries with them.
0: I love that you bring this aspect of just like realness of ownership, that we're all human and everyone's working with their own shit. So like no one is exempt. And how much can we actually own that? And the degree that we acknowledge it is actually the pathway towards doing better.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like this conversation just gets into this really specific aspect, I think, of the global culture we live in, but especially, I think, really specific dominant culture narrative in the US, which is just like an inability to tolerate shame. And, you know, it's interesting because there's all this conversation at the moment and for the past, I'd say at least a year where people are really sort of publicly obsessed with the idea of the narcissist. You know, there's like this, am I a narcissist? What's a narcissist? How do you like identify a narcissist? And like, one of the things I think is sort of ironic about this is we live in an extremely narcissistic culture. And one of the hallmarks of narcissism is an inability to process shame which then the person who is having the narcissistic defense is projecting the shame out onto other people. And if you are a clinician, you have to try your hardest not to harm anyone and do the personal work not to, but also when we do do harm or, or when we are just like not our best to be able to tolerate the shame enough to actually really confront that in ourselves so that we, you know, so the, so that we have that self-awareness not to do it in the future.
0: And to go deeper into that question that I asked earlier, just like one layer deeper into physical cues, can you point to anything of like dissociation or hyper arousal or hypo arousal that's like, whoa, that is clear. I said the thing and then the person sitting across from me like crunched down their shoulders and turned away and like clearly withdrew and there was like not even anything specific that happened. Like are there other like real markers that we could be more aware of?
1: Yeah. And this is one of the reasons I think somatic training is useful because you can actually really train yourself to be able to see a lot of this. Um, and for anybody who wants to start practicing, even just paying attention to someone's breathing pattern is a really important like p- part of how you can kind of track. Like if somebody is not breathing, if somebody seems very still, like to the point where they're too still to be, you know, most people are having a little tiny micro movements in their body all the time. Um, extreme stillness is usually a sign of dissociation. Uh, if you, the clinician or the, the practitioner are feeling kind of foggy in your own mind, that's probably a sign that either you are dissociating or you're tuned into your, um, client or the, the sort of the journey or, um, being dissociated. Um, so yeah, extreme stillness, um, uh, like a sense of just like the conversation just dropped off and the person is like, not really speaking, not really engaging kind of looks like they're not really looking at anything. Like they're not focusing on anything. I think those are all signs of dissociation. Um, and when we talk about sort of the, the other side of dissociation, so dissociation is a hypo aroused state where the nervous system is down regulating. And when we talk about the other side of that, that's a hyper aroused state where the nervous system is up regulating. And that would look like, you know, being extremely anxious, Uh, talking so fast that the person you can't really get a word in edgewise Um, repeating the same stories over and over again Um, uh, like moving like a lot of movement a lot of like maybe even like jittering around fidgeting with things Um, sometimes people can get a really intense like uh, what looks like their eyes are um, what is it called it's like laser focus like contraction in the neck and head where somebody's not like moving their head around freely they're just mm-hmm. kind of like laser focused in staring um and you know I'll also add just a really useful thing to do in that situation is to invite somebody to to move a little bit to kind of come out of it so those are some of the things that i think are signs that somebody is really triggered um and again i would just there's like so much training available on on starting to like tune your own body into being able to assess what's going on
0: and feel it. Are you familiar with the Strozzi Institute? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. I'd done their training as well, but it was more like they touch on trauma, but it's more oriented around like embodied leadership, which is, you know, there's like aspects of, of weaving that in, but I was kind of just curious if you'd heard of them.
1: Yeah, I have, and I haven't trained with them and in, I'm more oriented towards like the trauma and stuff than I am towards that stuff. But I know people really appreciate the work that they do and that they're um, pretty connected to generative somatics as well, which is an organization that has also uh, led by Stacy Haynes and is very interested in the healing of sexual trauma and addressing that in a political way.
0: Yeah, they wove it in. But the program I did with them was like more oriented towards like what it means to embody leadership in the space, um, which was sort of an angle that I was kind of really curious to experience. Okay, I'm just kind of curious, like as a community, what are we doing well around calling in or calling out transgressions? And what are we really not doing well as a community right now?
1: Well, I think one of the things that we're doing well at the moment is that we're talking about it. I think that's really important. Um, and I think it's we've up-leveled that a lot in the last year. I would say one of the things that we're not doing as well, or it's like a job interview, where I could see room for improvement. Um, <laughs> I think we need a more clear agreement. I think more people need to be on board that this isn't okay. I think a lot of people actually don't actually think this is really that damaging to do to, um, to, to somebody who they're working with. Um, so I think we just generally collectively need to be more taking it more seriously. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I would say is like, we just, we need to understand that even if we're not the person causing the harm, we're a part of the community that lets it happen. So there's the person who's been harmed and then there's the person who causes the harm, And then there's all the people who are the bystanders to that. There are all the people who, uh, you know, you get a choice whether you're going to believe it or not, whether you're going to respond or not, whether you're going to say something, you get a choice about whether or not you're going to challenge your peer that maybe, you know, has done something like this. And that's an arena where I think it can be really easy to kind of be like, okay, well, I'm not doing this and it hasn't been done to me. So it's not really my issue, but actually like, we just really need to create a community that doesn't accept this level of harm. and when I say doesn't accept it, like actively is, is saying, no, this needs to be talked about in every training. This needs to be talked about very regularly. I think you probably may remember from my talk at horizons, you know, in non-psychedelic spaces, we don't have research on psychedelic spaces, but in non-psychedelic spaces, seven to 12% of clinicians, mental health clinicians in the U S self-report that they've crossed a sexual boundary with someone who they work with. That's wild. It's just a really, really big number. And it's a number that's so big that it's really shocking that there's not more conversation about it in non-psychedelic mental health spaces, that there's not more conversation. I have a feeling it's a really similar number or more in psychedelic spaces. And so we have to really ask ourselves, like, why do we have all these trainings where no one talks about this? (laughs) <laughs> this, this, this should be embedded. And I don't just mean like, oh, there's a module on it. You know, like it should just be embedded in it when we're talking about doing touch in psychedelic work. We should be talking about how to not harm. Um, when we're talking about working with trauma, when, you know, all, all layers, we could be talking about it. And I think that's like a, an arena that we just need to do a much better job.
0: You just mentioned touch and my mind was also going there and like, okay, we heal through relation and through touch actually is a big part of that. And so how do we navigate that space where someone's in an altered state of consciousness and it can actually be very healing to have hands on?
1: Yeah. If you want to touch people who you work with, you should be trained in touch is basically my, my answer to that. And, Mm -hmm. um, And I think, again, you know, people are like,
0: I don't want to get the training. I don't want to, you know. I don't even hear that, though. I don't hear a lot of people being like, I don't want to get the training. I hear a lot of people being like... Which training? I'm actually going to be doing a, a psychedelic summit highlighting a bunch of the different facilitator trainings um, because oh, right now it's like such a big question, but I feel like more people that I that come to me anyways are like, which trainings? And like, should I invest in this one or that one? And there's like a huge race right now <laughs> to mm-hmm. like for companies that are like launching trainings and that they're actually hard to get into. Like the MAPS training is like a wait list and it's not easy for people to just dive into trainings besides- yes. and- People who don't want to go for like a three-year master's degree, for example.
1: Yes. that And that's awesome that I am also hearing the, I don't want to, you know, do an, like another training, but that's great that people want to get the training. Um, you know, and again, I'll also say like, I think you can get a really amazing training in touch and consent that's not psychedelic in nature and get psychedelic training and merge those. So if there's a touch training that's specific to psychedelic work, that's awesome. And if you can't get in, it's also a great idea just to do any kind of touch training. Um, Any
0: recommendations? Do you
1: know any? Yeah. You know, one that I'm actually, I I love Britta Love's work. And when I spoke at Horizons the first time, um, Britta did an awesome section um, about the Wheel of Consent, um, which is Betty Martin's work. Um, and I think that's an amazing training. I think anybody who's going to be working with people who are, you know, intoxicated on a substance and and doing healing work, it's a great idea to get, um, some, some deep training on consent and like how consent works and how do we get consent and what are your feelings on consent? So that's, that's one that I would definitely recommend.
0: Okay, great. What do you think about people, practitioners who are working with people who do have trauma and actually just having another person present in the room, if there's going to be, hands-on touch. It's a great idea. Because it, it also makes sense that in an altered state of consciousness, the person receiving this healing might also distort storylines. And then like, how do you navigate things like that where there's like a practitioner who's like, no, I genuinely was holding good space. And do you think that, have you seen any of that sort of dynamic of like, no, this is actually you and your storylines are being distorted because you're in an altered state?
1: Yeah, I have heard about an experience where somebody was in an altered state and did uh sort of accuse the clinician of doing something and the clinician luckily had another um assistant in the room who was able to, you know, verify like that didn't happen and mm-hmm. um and but I I don't want to get too into like uh, stories where people like kind of make things up. I I, I like to be kind of careful about talking about it because so much of the time it's really not being made up. Mm-hmm. I'll also say, you know, like there's all these sort of ways that we want to safeguard against this. Like we're like, what if the people, you know, what if there's a licensing board and what if there's Mm -hmm. a place you can go to to tell people this happened? And, and we really want to imagine that there's a way to completely prevent sexual violence. Um, And one of the cases that I always go go back to that I think is so uh, indicative of how hard it is to prevent sexual violence is the situation with Richard Jensen, and Donna Dreyer, where, you know, there's two people in the room, one of them is licensed it's in a freaking like trial for MDMA. It's like these, you know, this is like lots and lots of people involved in this and still sexual Mm -hmm. violence happened. And I don't say that to say like, you know, we should all be hopeless, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that we're just living in a global epidemic of sexual violence. And it's so much bigger than than a regulation or Mm -hmm. like one kind of sort of a set of like a checklist that we check off and kind of say, okay, I did everything. Now there's no violence. that's going to happen. There's just so much about doing that deep personal work.
0: Mm-hmm. And he came out publicly, right? Richard Jensen. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, he acknowledges that he did do what he did, but he uh, says that, I mean, he does not think it was wrong is my understanding. I haven't spoken to him personally.
0: Can you share a little bit more about what happened? Do you know what happened? What did he admit to? Uh, He admitted to having a sexual relationship
1: with a person who was a participant in a MAPS trial that he was the one of the um, co-therapists for.
0: Okay, and so in situations where someone publicly acknowledges and maybe even publicly apologizes, do you think that there's space for people to learn and grow and do better and keep practicing? Oh, man, this is a hard
1: question. I think it's a hard question because there's so many kinds of abuse that can happen. Um, I do not think that people who cause any kind of harm, this, you know, need to just like throw their careers away. But I will say, if you have sexually abused somebody who you are working with, I would, I would suggest pausing on your work for a long time. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I think that is that is crossing a line as a clinician and a practitioner that is, I would, I would not trust, I would not trust that person to just continue on practicing with all their other clients or their other people and say to themselves, like, it's okay. I just did it this once. It's this, it needs to be taken very, very seriously. Um, yeah. And I, I would never personally refer to anyone like if the part of where I draw the line is I'm like, would I ever refer to you? No, I wouldn't. Okay. Like, you know, I think, and I also think that if somebody has caused sexual harm, um, at that point, that person's life path has just something very big has happened in it. And a big part of their life path is now going to be grappling with the fact that they caused the sexual harm. I don't think it's the kind of thing where you're just like, okay, I made that mistake. Sorry, I'm going to go back to practicing. It's like, maybe at some point that person goes back to practicing and they're practicing with other people who have caused sexual harm. You know, like I just don't, I don't, at that point that becomes a part of your journey and your story and it needs to be integrated in some kind of way that makes sense. And I just do not think that it makes sense to just like kind of blip over it, say, I'm sorry, and like move on.
0: Mm -hmm. I love having this conversation with you because especially you also have a podcast and, um, you know, so do I clearly. And I feel a lot of responsibility in like the messages that get communicated. And like, I have this conversation all the time. I actually know someone who serves medicine. He's, you know, a white male. And I've seen this pattern of predatory behavior young women, past history of trauma. And I'm like, what do I do? Like, who do I tell or what do I say? And where do I go? And do I like fucking publicly announce this? Or like, (laughs) you know, and then there's been people in like the buffo space and like where major, major things have happened. And then it's come up in group discussions. And some people, if it's very polarizing, some people are like, yeah, you should speak your truth about your experience with that person and other people who are like, that's totally inappropriate to speak that publicly. So it's like, what do we do here? <laughs>
1: I want to make an analogy and and just because, okay, so we have, all of us are like poisoned with this really toxic world around sex and sexuality. So sexual violence is so normalized and we just are like, okay, well, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's kind of okay, or it's not that bad. It's so normalized. It's really hard for us to understand what's going on. So for example, let's say there was a healing practitioner And once, twice, maybe 10 times in their career, they brought a gun to their, their work and they didn't shoot the person they were working with and kill them. They just shoot them and harm them enough that they have to go to the ER. And that person maybe is doing physical therapy for a year or two. And it's like really dramatically affecting this person, but you know, the person didn't die. Like, I would be like, you should not just, you know, even if you're, even if a thousand people are going to come to you and you don't shoot them and you shoot the a thousandth and one, one person like, no, that's, you know, and I think, I mean, it sounds like kind of an extreme analogy, but like, I think people really need to understand we're talking about people who are abusing the people who they're working with. It's, this is not like It's not like, oh, well, you do good work with most people. No, when you're a healing practitioner, you only get, that's a very sacred role. You only get to step into that role if you are actively committed to not harming the people you work with. And if you're causing harm, even if it's totally unconscious and you have no idea why you're doing it and you just wake up in the middle of it and you're like, whoa, I'm in this situation again you should not be
0: practicing. Right. But most people don't even know. They're just totally unaware. It's like total shadow.
1: And, and, and with that, I would say, yeah, I mean, there's this, then I go back to, you know, and I I mentioned this at the, in my horizons talk, um, you know, there are going to be the people who are just in complete denial. The community needs to be strong enough to react to that. And as of right now, I think the community is too traumatized to do anything about it. I mean, we are, we are trying, you know, there are many people who are building up systems and, and, and really trying to think critically about like, how are we going to hold people accountable, especially in a space where people are doing things that are criminalized, like uh, medicine work. And so it's like, you know, it's not, it's not actually always safe to be like, oh, hey, I'm going to just publicly announce this on like the internet, because you're also putting a bunch of people at risk of, um, at a criminal risk related to drugs being illegal. but the community needs to keep uh, building ourselves, building our own capacity to respond to this because there are going to be the people who are just so far gone. They're not going to listen.
0: OK, so for people who are listening, who might be on either side of the equation here, I heard you say something on someone else's show about like the necessity for people who work with trauma, who are experienced have, have past experience in trauma, you go to a psychedelic journey. There's like a really a lot that you have to like be skilled at navigating through. I think regardless, like as you're saying, you know, we all have no no one's unscathed here. So everyone, whether you're a practitioner or a facilitator or a guide, or just someone who's like starting on the path and doing your own work, we all sort of need to equip ourselves with the skill sets of like, wow, this is really Freaking tough in this moment to like face shadow parts of ourselves or face the unconscious or face the trauma. And it is amazing to see, like over the past five years, like the amount of people talking about integration now. It's more and more, even though some people, for sure, are paying lip service to it. But it, the, the the content and the curriculum around integration is developing, and less so, I would say, around preparation. And so I'm curious. I mean, even just like as good life skills to be able to like navigate through emotional difficulty and really challenging terrain. Like, what are some of those? aspects of preparation? And can guides actually work with people for a year, for example, before even touching medicine on like building up those skill sets? Yeah, such a great
1: question. And I know a lot of people say that they see uh, preparation as kind of a part of integration, but I feel like it needs its own kind of like we need to delineate because it, it is, I think it's almost not more important than integration, but it's really essential. So, so yeah, when we talk about going into a medicine space and we talk about healing trauma in there people who have a lot of trauma tend to have pretty hard journeys and so much of what I feel like so much of the art of healing with a psychedelic is being able to completely surrender to it, to surrender all the way to the experience and, um, And in that surrendering, you know, I think of it almost like it's a dance, like it's a collaboration between the medicine and your own psyche. And um, if you're in there kind of being rigid about it, you know, you're, you're doing a rigid dance. (laughs) It's not necessarily going to be so smooth, Um, but it's understandable that it's hard to surrender because the medicine might be inviting you to physically move in ways that frighten you. It might be inviting you to feel something that is excruciating. Um, it might be showing you something or telling your, you something about yourself that you feel really ashamed of, or there's a ton of grief that can come up. So I think of it kind of like, like if you're peeling back layers of an onion, if you just go in to a journey and you didn't peel any layers, like you're going to, you're going to be doing all the layer peeling in the journey, (laughs) So one thing I'll say about that is just like, you know, if there's like a hundred layers to get down to the deep, deep trauma, uh, like just in terms of expectation management, you know, people go into these journeys and if they aren't doing any healing work outside of the journey and they're like, I'm going to heal my trauma, it's like probably what you're going to do first is just peel one layer back. Um, and, and it may take a long time actually to get in and, and be doing the, the trauma work. And it just does take a really long time, right? Like all this sort of obsession with like, I'm going to do this. It's going to one, one night I'll be totally healed. That's, that's just not how it works with trauma, especially not severe trauma. So what I would say to that is that we can be building a much deeper relationship to ourselves before we go into journey work. And I think that looks like meditation. I think it looks like therapy. I think it looks like breath work. I think it looks like having um, like a uh, an ongoing journaling practice. It's just it's you know there's no kind of like I, w- I want to say it's not rocket science. Like it's just like really basic healing work that I think builds our capacity to confront ourselves, and that's a big part of what we do in journey work, except we just do it in a way where like, you don't get to like press an eject button and like leave the journey all of a sudden you're just in there. So if it's really hard, you know, you, you need to be able to kind of breathe through it. Um, and the last thing I'll say on that is just that I think, um, having some like core resource, like something really core that you have practiced enough that you can go back to it is very helpful. That could be something like you sing every day. And then, you know, if you're in a sort of a journey space where you're not necessarily around a bunch of other people who are like it's not a group journey, being able to sing a song. If that means that you're doing really intentional breathing, and that's the thing you can come back to is like I I mean, I have been in a journey like that where I had to come back to I'm still alive and that's all I've got. And I know that because I'm breathing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so those kinds of, you know, if you practice. For example, like like doing a lot of somatic sensing in and letting your body move the way you want it to move. Anything that you can drop into as your kind of final, like, okay, this is my anchor. I think those are great things to prep. And this thing you said about like, you know, is it okay to like prep for a year? 100%, 100%. I mean, I think a lot of people do tons and tons of healing work that they don't call prep and then they go into a journey, but that was their prep. And that might've been going to therapy for five years and then suddenly being like, oh, I want to go do psychedelic work.
0: Do you think that ketamine could be a good stepping stone for people before going into other more expanded psychedelic experiences? Not that ketamine's not expanded, but I'm kind of curious your thoughts about that.
1: I do. And I'm a ketamine therapist. And mm-hmm. so I definitely see that as like, I think it's, you know, it's short. Mm-hmm. You can do a low dose. Um, if you're really drug naive, I think it's a great place to go in and just kind of experience like, oh, here's what it's like to not have control over my body, to be really vulnerable. And, you know, people really underestimate what that's like. I mean, people all the time are like, okay, I'm going to go in. And I'm like, okay, like you might not be able to control your own body. Like you might be so high that you don't know who you are anymore. And that is, can be really, really healing, but it's, it's not casual. Like, People talk about this stuff. Like it's like, they come out and they're like, that was amazing. And I'm like, they're not telling you, <laughs> they're not telling you how bad it is when you're in it. We're not bad, but just it's how scary and intense it can be. So I definitely think ketamine is a nice, like, kind of dropping in, especially at a low dose to kind of just experience that.
0: Right. Which also makes me wonder about like, I don't understand how a dissociative could also heal trauma, first of all. And what about these experiences that are just like so full on for people to experience that that's actually like traumatic in and of itself?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, and I talk about this in my podcast, actually, that, um, you know, so Having a really, really, really intense experience where you can't control your own body, you can't control what's going on in your mind, you can't get away from the high. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, when I say there's no eject button, like
0: I'm I know just, that anybody feeling. listening, I, I, I just- know that. I was like, I remember, I just like flash back to this one experience where I was like, ten hours in, and I was like, when is this going to end? Like, I am ready.
1: <laughs> that you know, it's so funny because people who don't do this work, but they're like, I want to try it. I'm like. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, take how many hours you're going to be high. You might be thinking that entire time I want to stop. Like that's actually what it can (laughs) be like. That is potentially reenacts sexual trauma to be like, something is happening to my body. I do not have control over it. I want it to stop and I can't make it stop. And for that reason, I would say, you know, the prep work around, I'm really consenting to this. I'm really going to surrender to this is really important. Because you can most definitely be re-traumatized or accrue new trauma in a psychedelic journey. And then, of course, with this piece that we're talking about with guides, like, obviously, that, you know, if if you're not, it's complicated because you want to surrender, but also, you know, you need to also be sussing out whether that guide is somebody who's safe to surrender around.
0: Right, which actually is a big piece around preparation with people is psychological safety like building a relationship of trust and creating a container that allows for psychological safety as like an actual ingredient for preparation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. There's so many different aspects that I'm like, Oh, I want to go into with you. What about microdosing as a a preparation tool? It's funny. So I do a lot of microdosing work with people. um, And I think that there's also a misconception that microdosing, because it's a a microdose, that it can't actually re-trigger trauma, but that's also not true or accurate. And I think um, even for people who are like, oh, it's just such a small amount. And like, I'm now a microdosing coach that you actually still need to be trauma informed.
1: Yeah, I think you should be trauma informed if you do any kind of healing work. Um, I don't know enough about microdosing to really give a, a any kind of um strong statement about it. Um and yeah, I mean I I think it seems like a lot of people really really love it. I'm a macrodose kind of person. Um what <laughs> I will say when I've taken a microdose is I I've definitely been in circumstances where I'm like Oh, like it's a little micro dose. And then I'm like, whoa. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> you can still be high on a microdose.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, totally. And settings still matter on a microdose. Definitely. One more question about Matthew Johnson. He did his keynote at horizons as well about people not bringing in like dominant faith, for example, or, you know, weaving in aspects of that. So I, I, I grapple with that because like for me personally, I feel like helpful modality for preparation is Tibetan Buddhism and Eastern philosophy. There's like an enormous amount of depth of wisdom of actually learning how to sit in the discomfort of challenging emotions. It's like, 101 unit training for that, that I actually think is like incredible preparation for psychedelic journeys and integration. I'm kind of curious your thoughts about that, like weaving in other wisdom traditions that have like a a faith-based practice. Yeah. You know, I 100%
1: agree with you. I think like Buddhism and meditation are extremely valuable on their own. And they also are very um, valuable in combination with psychedelic work. And in terms of weaving in someone's faith, okay, like most faith traditions have some type of process of deep presence. And, um, I think that in some, in some circumstances that gets really distorted in certain religious practices. Um, but I do think that it's possible to, you know, if somebody is like, here's my faith to, to ask them, great, like what happens in your faith around, um, accessing deep presence, and I would just maybe go with that. Um, you know, we don't want to like force any kind of spirituality on anyone. Um, but I, I think there, I think there is a way to practice a, a meditative practice that isn't necessarily forcing a spirituality. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like hundred percent agree with that. I think it's really important to be, um, just for people's journey work to be culturally relevant to them. Um, and so if somebody has a faith, like I'm like roll with it, like, mm-hmm. you know, Talk, mm-hmm. talk to whoever your your god is or whoever like your <laughs> your higher power is
0: and and but as like practitioners or guides just being fully transparent around like hey this is a preparation tool this comes from tibetan buddhist practices it's really helped me you know try it out if that could be helpful for you like what's your One, take on that yeah
1: 100 percent. i think that's totally yeah i mean i I encourage everyone to meditate. So, and I, you know, and I'm like, and if you want to go deeper, you could also, because of course there's meditation and then there's all the practices and all the theory and the, and the thinking around it, which I think is is really, really valuable and makes meditation a lot easier if you understand that stuff. So I think that's great to to bring that, that piece in. If somebody's, and again, it's all about consent. You know, if somebody's like, no, I don't want anything spiritual going on here, which is an interesting thing to approach medicine work with, but pe- definitely people do. Um, or if they're averse to a certain spirituality, I just think it's about like being creative and finding a new way around it. But definitely, I think that's a great tool for, for prep and making it through the the experience.
0: Yeah. And I'm kind of curious, like how, when we're talking about meditation or just like somatic awareness for people who have trauma, who actually don't want to feel their body, like, is there stepping stones that you can work with, with people? Because actually a lot of people who have deep seated trauma, like the last thing they want to do is like tune into somatic awareness.
1: 100%. Yeah. So what I always start with is the breath. And I start with, you don't have to feel what's actually going on in your body. You can, you know, but like try taking a bigger, deeper breath or try taking a more soothing breath. Um, and I find that that's a really helpful way to just be like, we're doing a somatic practice, but you can still be pretty checked out from how it actually feels inside.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you notice that a lot? Like in terms of that correlation with trauma and not wanting to be in the body? Oh, 100%.
1: Yes. It's, I think a really, really, it's normal to not want to be in your body when you've experienced trauma and, like it's a, it's so understandable. I mean, when, when we talk about getting less dissociated, I'm also just like, you can also just choose to be dissociated if you want to, like it's, you're not required to feel this terrible feeling. I'll say though, if you're a healing practitioner, you are definitely required to heal. But you know, if you're not stepping into a healing role, it's like, it's up to you if you want to do that. And we all get to choose how much we want to heal in that regard. And it is really, really, really hard. And I, I think that's another like just piece of why prep work, long time prep work. I mean, whenever I hear somebody be like, I don't want to do any therapeutic stuff. I just want to go into the journey and get healed. I'm like, okay, this is a recipe for disaster. If you're not willing to to try out like a little bit of breathing or try out some coaching or try out some therapy or, or a little bit of integration prep work, you definitely shouldn't just throw yourself into an experience that's so extreme.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Anything that I didn't ask you that you would love to add to this conversation that we're diving into all the nuance of this. Yeah. Like even like personal, what are, what are some of like the core personal characteristics that you think are really important for people to embody who are stepping into this space to serve and to support and to guide? Yeah. You know, one thing I would say about that is that I think that
1: oftentimes our egos lead us into the work, but actually doing the work requires that we in a lot of ways let go of our egos. And and when I say that, what I mean is like, you know, when we come into the work and we're, we're like, I want to be a healing practitioner of some kind, it can feel like I want to be good at something. I want to make a difference in the world. You know, a lot of, I want to do this. I want to do that. And I relate to that. I mean, you know, obviously there was a point in my life where I was like, I think I want to become a therapist. I, and in, in more recent years, I think part of the transition that I've been making is like more um, I am of service and I'm of service in this body, in this lifetime, in this moment, but there's a much uh, deeper force working through me and I am here to humbly serve that force. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't necessarily think of that through any specific sort of religious denomination, but I, I say this because I think really, really skilled healing practitioners understand that it's ultimately not about them. And when I just say it's not about you, I don't mean like you're not there, you're not important. Like we are, we are holding it down. <laughs> like the world we are living in is really, really wounded. And we serve this incredibly important role where we are holding it down for healing. But also, you know, the process of doing that, it's not about soothing our own egos. It's about doing a really deep level of spiritual work for the world in service of the world and in service of life. And so I think that's just a really important thing to -hmm. to hold as -hmm. practitioners.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. That's a lot of responsibility. And there's also this aspect though of people, especially women, like I just want to speak to this aspect of of women stepping out to support this space because- there are i would say probably like 90% of the really big decisions that are getting made around the psychedelic movement right now are probably in the hands of white men who are sitting around the table with lots and lots of money involved and i really do want to inspire more women to contribute their voices and we live in this like call out culture like not good enough i'm unworthy who am i to lead so there's like that that ego aspect and then i also do see this other side of the equation of who am I to do this, and I have no right doing this? And what what would you say to those people?
1: Well, I'm excited for when we talk more about my book because I feel like my whole book is like a love letter to those people. We all have something really important to contribute. I don't know what it is that that each of us is going to contribute, but I know that we each have something important to contribute. And it's very, very normal when you're living under systems of oppression to feel like, you to have low self-esteem and to feel like what you have to offer is not important. And I also think it's really important for us, you know, regardless of your self-esteem to really challenge yourself to, to inquire about why you're offering something and and what, you know, what it is and sort of look at the ego. So it's this really complicated Mm -hmm. line between examining our shadow stuff, examining our egos and also valuing ourselves enough to, to say something, to do something, to be in the world. Um, And so like all you know, like all I have to say to people is like, my love is with you. Like the, the, you know, other practitioners are out here and like, we, we want more community. We want people to speak out. Like I know for myself, I am grateful every time somebody who has something really important to say says it. Um, and I think it's a, it can be a really challenging process to love yourself enough to value what you have to say. And to do that deep shadow work to to come out with like here's here's how I'm
0: going to enter the space mm-hmm. right. And just actually what it means to tune into authentic truth and leading from center rather than from like ego inflation or not good enough, those are both off center. Right. And like, how do we really tune into like, what is true within the paradigm and the cultural context of so much crazy, so much crazy that is currently like falling apart (laughs) into like a whole new dimension right now. So, and then people who feel like, how do I charge money for this? And, you know, I'm like, they're huge, huge questions when money and medicine are changing hands.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a a huge, huge topic that I also want to talk more with you about that. I think, yeah, just, you know, obviously I write a lot about that in my book too. And, Mm -hmm. um, it, it, we are being put into a situation that is where there's no right answer. Sometimes there really isn't like, none of us can magically pretend that we're not in capitalism anymore. Mm -hmm. And like, obviously, I mean, for me, myself, and I think for a lot of healing practitioners, we do not want to continue to cause harm. And so how do we walk that path of an, a system that is harmful and being in it and trying to cause less harm.
0: Right. Which is sort of just like an, an ongoing process of inquiry. That's like the, the Zen cone really. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I so appreciate your time. I love all that you share and speak to. And I, again, I just thought you did such an amazing job delivering that keynote at Horizons and it was just really impacted me. And so thank you for taking the time to share all of this with my audience. It's really an honor.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Really, really appreciate being here.
0: Thank you. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, I would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave me a review on iTunes. If you're on Instagram, feel free to send me a DM at livefreelaurad, letting me know that you left a review, and I'd be more than happy to share it in my Instagram stories, giving you a shout out. If you'd like to be in touch with me about anything at all, please feel free to reach out through my website, lauradawn.co, where you can also access a range of free downloads. To access all of the resources mentioned in this episode, you can go to lauradawn.co forward slash 47. I'm going to leave you with this song by the Emmett sisters called Water. Once again, my name is Laura Dawn, and you're listening to the Psychedelic Leadership Podcast. Until next time.
2: Let me be like water, power fast and strong, flow gracefully. When this body's laid to rest, what doesn't die he is me. Let me be a fool to choose, blind faith. Let me be a fool, wipe illusion from where the truth may lay. Cause life is for the living, death is for the dying to what is lying like. the curve